everybody can learn and understand how to take care of people to get to the bigger mission, the mission that's bigger than all of you. Hey, what's going on? You're listening to the Live Leaderly Podcast. I'm your host, Darren Alba. Here on the show, we invite guests from all walks to share their stories about leadership, which just become stories about life. I ask that with the people in your life, please tell your story, listen to theirs, but in the meantime, we'll do it together here on the Live Leaderly Podcast. And joining us on the show today, retired physician at the Department of Veterans Affairs, Lisa Maria Maddox. Lisa, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing pretty great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Where where are you calling in from today? I'm calling from Grovetown, Georgia. So it's a suburb of Augusta. And uh, this is Master's Week, so there's certain parts of town you stay away from. Okay. Yeah, they just had the... um, the Valero Texas Open here, and I know the next stop on the on the tour is over there in Augusta. So I like to ask as a, a bit of an icebreaker is, um, do you have a first memory of leadership, maybe when you're a, a kid or a teenager that you can think back to, Lisa? Um, when I was growing up playing sports, I got to be team captain in high school for softball and basketball. Okay. Why do you think you were selected for those roles, you think? I think because the coaches saw my my enthusiasm and um, energy and that people on the team would listen to the advice or things that I said to them. Lisa, do you mind sharing a little more about your background and and where you're from? Sure. I'm from Augusta, Georgia, home of the Masters and uh, number one godfather of soul, James Brown. I went to West Point, graduated in 89 with your father. And um, after that was originally commissioned MI. So I did MI for two years. And then went to medical school following that. And that was actually a tough decision because I had gotten accepted to medical school. And that was right when Desert Storm was was starting. And I made the choice to go ahead to go to medical school. Uh, After that, I did uh, a surgical internship and then was stationed in Alaska for two years and came back, served out my time, then worked as a, uh, what's called a surety officer, which is weird. We did inspections to get rid of the chemical weapons because of various treaties that were in effect. So I did that for four years, uh, finished residency. I ended up taking a job at the VA here back at home in Augusta, and I did that for almost six years and then retired. Living the dream, retired. You were, am I originally... Uh, before switching over to go to medical school and, and you know medical services after that, what what made you switch to medical coming from the intelligence field? I had always wanted to go to medical school. Um, I wanted to be a doctor since I was little. And I had a couple of doctors when I was growing up and I wanted to be like them. One of the doctors that I, I loved was my pediatrician. And my mom always really loved him and talked favorably about him because he actually allowed us to come in the front door with everybody else. And that was at a time when race relations in in this state were transitioning. And so he was always kind and gentle. Um, And it was interesting to me that later on, I found out that his father was the one who restarted the Ku Klux Klan after World War II. So um, I I just, yeah, I I don't know if that had something to do with how he, you know, carried out his business or interactions, but he was a sweet man, ended up going to high school with his daughter. She was my classmate. So. 
And so that was an early example for you and you, you wanted to be a, a physician um, after those early experiences then? Yeah. And then I also had a, an orthopedic surgeon. I had um, shin splints really badly in high school. And this surgeon, I, I just thought it was amazing that he told me what to do, took care of me. I did it and the pain went away. And I that was a whole new concept to me. And then uh, so you would later go to the the academy. Was that an experience that you were expecting or uh, how, how did you find yourself going to the academy? Interesting story. A young man in the uh, class ahead of me in high school had gotten accepted to the Naval Academy, which sort of intrigued me. And I I was kind of like, well, how did he do that? I didn't know. And I was a a senior Girl Scout and I had the opportunity uh, as a junior, as a sophomore to work at the master's at a concession stand or to go to D.C. with my Girl Scout troop. So I decided to go to D.C. with my Girl Scout troop and There, I got to experience the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington. And that experience literally blew me away. I thought, wow, they're paying so much respect to these people who died in combat. And I felt like that was something that needed to be preserved for people coming behind me. Because I I felt like my parents had taught us that you could do anything you want it to, if you put your mind to it and dedicate yourself to doing that. And I felt like had I been born in a different country, I would probably not have the same opportunities that I have here. So that's when I decided that I wanted to go to a military academy. And uh, I chose West Point more because I could go to residency right after West Point and not have to wait. So, and I ended up having to wait anyway, but that's another story. Eventually you did get into medical school and serving in the army. If you could go back to uh, uh, an earlier Lisa, a younger Lisa, what kind of leadership advice do you think could have been useful back then, uh, given all that you've experienced since then? Oh, that's a great question. Um, for me at the time, I I thought leadership was more about just telling people what to do kind of thing. <laughs> not really understanding nuances and and what leadership really was and my later my perception of leadership became if you take care of your people they will take care of you and being fair so it was about earning respect earning those people's those people's respect i mean because when you come out and you're a lieutenant you have the rank and everybody sees that but earning their respect is a totally different beast. And that's not easy. It's, uh, especially when you're a lieutenant, um, you know, in, in MI in, in the field, it's a little different environment than maybe the hospital or the clinical setting. Did you find yourself maybe changing how you lead or looking at leadership differently when you moved to the medical world? It, it felt like in medicine, the people above me didn't, didn't really know how to lead they managed and it's a that's a subtle to me that's a subtle difference but and I don't even know that I can explain it but it is it is a difference and you know they they would would come down with with edicts or rules or you know changes that needed to happen and you always felt like you had no say in that and that it's hard to buy into something when you don't 
necessarily agree with it. And you feel like it, it's, you're being told to do something that may not make sense. And if you feel like the people who made those decisions and choices have forgotten what it's, it's like to be in the trenches. And so some of those, those laws, or not laws, but some of those rules would be kind of unrealistic to achieve. And so that's what was, that's what was, I, I feel like they were just managing because they gave, they told you what to do and that's what they expected you to do without any pretext or any, you know, anything else. Very, very different from the leadership that maybe you experienced at West Point and when you entered the army uh, where it became less about telling people what to do and, and taking care of people rather than managing processes like like what you talked about with some of those higher ups um, when you switched over to the medical field. Yeah. And, and one thing that, that I've, I've always uh, thought was a very relevant thing was Schofield's definition of discipline and, you know, adapting your leadership style to showcase your subordinate strengths. Showcase this uh, subordinate strengths. I, uh, I have come to appreciate much more the uh, the knowledge book from West Point and these little things that we had to <laughs> memorize, you know, during our time there. Because yeah. uh, at the time, it you know, it feels like a like a haze. It feels like uh, just another task to do, and and not till maybe later exactly. I, I came to appreciate. I was like, oh wow, there's there's some pretty pretty great nuggets in this in this little book that I had to memorize over the years. I still have my bugle notes, which is crazy. Lisa, if you could think um, about the best leaders that you've had throughout your careers, what uh, what things did you admire in, the, in them that you've tried to make as part of how you lead and how you live? They, they, and you, you can't get to do this with everybody, but as a lieutenant, as a young officer, there are people who, like my first company commander, he was gruff. He was, you know, and I pulled in his, his car had a Tennessee license plate. And the, when I went to report to him, the first thing he said to me was, I wanted to go to West Point, but I didn't. And I was like, okay, this is not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I felt. I was like, oh boy, this is not good. And he was okay, but he he really um, he really spoke highly of my predecessor in that job. And I, you know, being the only lieutenant in the HHC, the headquarters the uh, headquarters company, um, I had like every extra duty. And which was kind of comical when you think about it, you know, and he talked about how wonderful this guy was. And, and back at, the, at that time, the soldiers had to do tests to get promoted. And their average like in the 60s and 70s, which was barely passing, and they were getting volunteered for every every extra duty around post. They were doing being school crossing guards, doing police calls, doing all these other things that had nothing to do with their with their MOSs. And so I got to know my, my platoon leader, excuse me, my platoon sergeant very well. They couldn't assign us extra duties on post if we were doing training for their MOSs. Uh, I, was the, uh, I was the platoon leader for the, signals, the signal platoon in the MI battalion. So this was way back in the day, uh, right when they were transferring from the Chevy and GMC trucks to Humvees. And I had rat rakes, which were radio teletype um machines and that's how information would get passed up from the field up to different commands so battalion command regimental command or you know and then up to division command so you know with with intelligence so they would shoot we would shoot azimuths 
and they would go down range, you know, 60, 70 miles and we would shoot azimuths and they would have a scenario to kind of quote play with and they would have to, you know, practice their skills doing that. That was one thing that we did every, every week we had something on the training calendar, somewhere to go, something to do. We had classes for their MOSs. And what we did is we had the youngest soldiers start teaching the classes. And, you know, it's, it's a lot different when you're sitting in the back of a classroom and you can shoot spitballs and, and be a goof off. It's something totally different when you are teaching the class to people who you know know what and more than you do. And, and it, it really, I feel like it really sharpened their skills as well. I would go down to the motor pool and I would have the, uh, I would have the privates show me how to do PMCS, you know, and they're like, you know, and you can hear them sometimes talking about, oh yeah, I showed that dumb LT how to do a PMCS, <laughs> you know, that stupid butter bar. And it's like, and I'm thinking, yeah, but you did your PMCS really well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, we both benefited from it in the end. And I remember we went to we went to the, the leadership reactionary course and my platoon sergeant and I, we kind of argued back and forth about going to that. And then after we did it, he came up, he said, LT, I'm glad we did that. Because, again, we, we got to put those young soldiers in leadership roles under stress and they got to see that it wasn't all about just being in charge. You were you had to carry out your mission but you were also making sure that your your people were okay as well. Yeah, you don't have to be in charge. And, and sometimes when you empower people with tasks, like teaching teaching a class in, a, in front of a room full of people or teaching the lieutenant, I've been that lieutenant as well, teaching that lieutenant how to do basic mm-hmm. tasks around the motor pool. One of my favorite advice from my first platoon sergeant was don't be afraid to learn from a private. And you know that helps them develop. And uh, oh, wow. you, you really know... You really know if you understand your task, if you can teach it and uh, explain that to someone else. Exactly. And I, I felt like I earned their respect because they would always invite me to their parties and I would show up and I would stay for maybe 20 minutes, a half hour at the most, and then I would leave. But the fact that they invited me, I felt like that was that was an ultimate honor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we made sure that, you know, I, I told them, you know, I have no life. So if you guys go out drinking, because this was pre-Uber and mm-hmm. I was at a, on a Monterey Peninsula, so cabs were not that pl- that plentiful, if you will. And so we told them, you have my number. You have my phone number. If you are out drinking and you cannot drive, call me, call, my, call Sergeant Perry. One of us will come and pick you up. And because getting a DUI off post or on post is going to kill your career mm-hmm. and, you know, really do damage to your life as well. And so I actually had a couple of them call and, and we would tease them about it later. You provided that, that accessibility and giving them the, your number, telling them, like, like you said earlier, taking care of people is much more important than just telling people what to do, making them feel that you care and you are concerned about them uh, personally and for their well being. I remember being on the phone with, Sears credit a credit bureau or the Sears credit because I had soldiers who they would sometimes get a no pay due or whatever 
I remember being on the phone with them, with Sears, with JCPenney's, with whomever trying to negotiate something for them. I remember going to Army Relief Fund to get, this is what, 30 years ago? I remember going to Army Relief Fund to try to get money for these, these soldiers so that they could pay their bills, working with different agencies on post. That was part of my feeling of taking care of my soldiers. If I felt like if my soldiers knew that their family was okay and going to be okay, then they could, that was one less distraction and they could focus on their job and not, not worry about, oh my God, is, is my baby going to be able to eat? You know? And so I took that to heart and that was my feeling of making sure that my soldiers were taken care of. And, and I felt like I was fair, um, you know, because I felt like being fair and showing favoritism was not the way to go. Um, and like when we would do uh, FTXs on, on base, because our Fort Ord backed up against the Laguna Seca racetrack, which was like so cool. Um, <laughs> we, we would, um, you know, I, when, they, when they were in garrison, they, they all were registered in classes off post. All the NCOs were. And we would, we would rotate. So if somebody was, on, was on, uh, in, on the FTX and they had a, a class that night, we would have somebody come in and switch them out for those hours so they could go to class and then they would come back. And, and it was all, it was great because everybody knew that when it was their turn to be on the FTX and they were out in the field, that somebody was going to come and relieve them Mm -hmm. so that they could get their class work in. Because again, you know, you know how that is. They had to have college work to be able to get promoted. And and those things that you're helping take care of them, those are not intelligence tasks. Those are not signal tasks. These are like you said, just one less thing so they can focus on on making themselves better and they don't have to worry about things like their finances, things like um, just taking basic things like taking care of their family, but setting them up for success in, in all aspects of work and life. And I would let them like when we would do I'm sorry, when we do PT, we I would ask them like Monday, Wednesday, Friday were, you know, the big PT days. And sometimes we'd have like a battalion run or whatever on those on one of those days. But like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it was more relaxed. And so I would ask them, okay, guys, what do, what do we want to do for PT tomorrow or today or whatever? And sometimes we go down to the beach and play football, um, you know, play tag football. We would do, we'd go play basketball or we, we'd do something fun that, that they really got into um, and enjoyed it. And, and they got some say in what we did, which I think is important for subordinates to be able to get some say. You may not follow their suggestion but i think having a voice is is huge and having somebody that is willing to listen to you and not just automatically shoot you down and and i think when you do that if and when the time comes when you have to give an order that they don't have any say in they're going to trust you more because they know that you you give a damn about them and you care for them and you want you want us, you know, you want everybody to come through this mission safely and alive and knowing that that may or may not be the case. But when you have to give that order without any any input from anybody, we have to attack this. hill. We have to go here. We have to do this. They're going to do that without question. 
Yeah, two two great things there is one is is doing something fun with your team that's not a not just a formation run. D- doing something fun together where you guys can have uh, a good time, and then number two was building that trust by letting them have input. Um, letting, letting them contribute to problems and solutions and, and courses of actions. That way, when it is up to you as, as the, you know, the singular leader, they, they do have that trust that you have their, their best interest in yes. mind and they had their, their ideas really from the past to, uh, to contribute to that. And oddly enough, at West Point, I felt like, and I think a lot of women felt this way, that leadership was equated to how well you ran. Mm-hmm. And I sucked at running, come to find out years later that I had asthma um, and didn't know it because I always felt like I had a hard time breathing, breathing right when I was running. And, um, you know, in bas- I played on the basketball team uh, plebe year and, you know, basketball start, stop, start, stop. And that was I could do that. But when you started doing longer, more endurance runs, um, I had a really hard time with that. And the other thing at West Point, I did not get a leadership position first a year. Mm hmm. So I felt, I felt some kind of way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I promised myself that when I became a platoon leader, that I was going to take care of my soldiers better than what, how I was taken care of. Give them a better experience, take care of them better than, than maybe some of the treatment that you received um, from, from some of your higher ups. One of the, the guiding questions for, for our podcast and here at Leaderly is, uh, and you touched on some themes already, but can anyone learn to lead? In, in your opinion, Lisa, can anyone learn to lead? I think anyone can learn to lead some people up to their highest level of incompetence, if you will. I mean, I don't, I don't think everybody is meant to be a CEO. I don't think everybody is made to be a company commander. I don't think every, you know, but I think everybody can learn and understand, in my opinion, how to take care of people to get to the bigger mission, the mission that's bigger than all of you. They don't necessarily have to ascend to the the tip of a pyramid, but um, all those small things that you just talked about over the over the last couple of minutes, little ways that you can take care of people and make them feel cared for, make them feel understood, make them feel like someone's looking out for them. Anyone can can do those things in a leadership capacity. Yes. And, and it was interesting as a platoon leader, we, we had uh, a regiment and two, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the other brigade, duh, brigade. Yeah. Yeah. Defense readiness rate, duh. So, um, <laughs> so we would be on, we had a, a rat rig uh, stationed with each of the regiments and the brigade headquarters. It was seventh infantry division. So we were rapid deployable light infantry and, Every like we were either on defense readiness in defense readiness brigade. Um, you were either on on call with a like a, an hour recall time to be on post and ready to go. And if once you finished that, you were in recovery. And then after that, you were in preparation to be um, on NDRB. And so, what was amazing is after I became the platoon leader, not to toot my own horn, but after I became the platoon leader and those guys, their SQT scores were in the nineties, the eighties and the nineties coming from the sixties and Mm seventies. And they became, they had much more pride in what they did because as a signal platoon in the MI battalion, they were kind of the redheaded stepchildren. Sorry for Mm -hmm. redheads. Um, (laughs) Sorry to the redheads out there. And, um, and so they, they were not the preferential platoon, if you will, but 
it once we got them, you know, doing their job instead of doing all the extra stuff to try to make the battalion commander happy and trying to make the soldiers happy and, and get them, you know, doing their job better. Every time we went on defense readiness brigade, one of our soldiers from my platoon got a got an impact award every single time. They had pride in what they did, and that was something they didn't have before. Well, Lisa, we're we're close to wrapping up here shortly, but I did want to turn it back over to you if you had any other thoughts about leadership or any advice about leadership that you wanted to add before we close out. I, I think, I mean, we go through four years at the Academy of learning leadership and and everything and put it in, you know, putting that into practice and in different roles that you have as a cadet. What I took from that again is you're not trying to make you shouldn't be trying to make your boss happy. I feel it's the other way. You should be making your subordinates happy because if you do, then you will shine to your to your boss. You will be a shining light. And when you try to make your boss happy, those those uh, goals may not align with what your soldiers need and what they need to do for their careers. And and you end up in a in a position where people hate the army, they hate you, they hate their job, they hate their unit. And that's not the place you want to you want to take. That's not the place from where you want to take people to go into a combat situation with you. Take care of those below you. That way they can better appreciate the job and the work that they're doing. Enjoy what they're doing. And that will take care of the rest of the missions that you have uh, at the other echelons. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your thoughts and story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was this was actually a lot better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear. It was awesome. Thank you, Lisa. Our guest today, Lisa Maria Maddox. And for all those out there listening, this has been the Live Weedily Podcast. <laughs>